The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Uh, welcome everyone to the True Ambition podcast. My name is John Zink, and uh, today my special guest is over Zoom, and he is zooming in from uh, the Austin, Texas area. That's uh, somebody I've known for a while. I've uh, been a client of mine and uh, an acquaintance and friend, and it's Mr. Alan Stickler. And uh, Alan is uh, the CTO of. Uh, company called urgent care for kids and we're going to find out more about uh, that company here after a while uh, you're in uh, round rock texas yep and uh, how far outside of austin is that round rock's just north so maybe five ten miles north of austin okay I- i've never been to austin before and you know me i'm a music guy uh, yeah, i can't I believe i've not crazy. been out there before yeah when the world comes back together we'll definitely have you out here yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So you were born in Boston, Massachusetts. That's right. Tell me about Boston. What was it like growing up out there? Uh, it was great. I mean, it was, we, we lived in a small house. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot colder. You know, the thing about Boston when I talk to people is in Boston, everyone's super loyal. So if you, if your grandparents weren't friends, you're probably not making into that social circle. Um, yeah. it's been around forever and, uh, you know, I took public transportation everywhere. Um, I think it was after college when I moved back when I finally learned how to, and I knew how to drive, but I didn't know how to drive around the streets of Boston. I just always taken public transportation. So, um, it was just super easy. Um, didn't really know what the world was like. I went to school in Missouri, so that was my first time really leaving Boston. I visited other places, but didn't have an appreciation for just how tight-knit it was there and the group of friends I had. Um, but now it's the kind of place where I love to visit, but I don't think I can live back up there again. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, uh, my wife and I are getting ready to go on a road trip. Uh, so I know that I've talked to you since, but I've got a little two-year-old boy named Johnny. And uh, we're taking him back because of COVID. The only person in my family who's met Johnny has been my mom. So we're going to take off on like a three-week road trip back uh, to a bunch of different places, but end up back in Illinois. And uh, it's, it's funny you talk about uh, the loyalty thing. You know, I grew up in a really small town in Northwest Illinois. And talk about loyalty. I mean, it's just it, you either belonged or you didn't belong. And if you didn't belong, you were not welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen, I've got, I went to school in Missouri. My best friend, uh, roommate, college roommate lives, has lived in Illinois most of his life. And, uh, you know, when I would visit him and we would go around, like you could tell who he was close with and who he had nothing to do with. Like it was one or the other. There were no two scenarios there either. So very similar. But we had, uh, I was about three hours straight west of Chicago and we hated people from Chicago. (laughs) We're like, you need to leave right now. So it was, uh, it was interesting. I love Chicago now. It's, a, it's, it's one of those things where I think if you grow up in a small town and uh, you yeah. get very territorial and uh, you don't like people that aren't like you, you know, or maybe it's fear. I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, it was, I always remember that. It's like, oh, they're from Chicago. <laughs> so growing up, were you a White Sox fan or a Cubby fan? None of the above. I'm musician, and uh, my, my dad wasn't really into sports. And uh, it, my, I loved playing baseball, uh, but I just never got into any teams because my, my dad just wasn't into it, you know. So I, it took me until I moved to Minneapolis until I got into football. And I'm still a huge Vikings fan, which is a huge curse for me because they never win the big one. <laughs> but uh, your wife is named Jamie. Yep. And uh, you got three sons. So I, I just got I just got the one boy. So you have Elliot. Is it Shia and Dove? Dove. Dove. And uh, two dogs, Grayson and Harley. So oh, and you got fish and snails too. So you got a busy household going on over yeah. there. 
I, I hate to admit it, but my kids will catch me watching our snails. Like we got this fish tank and we had algae, so I got some snails just to clean it up. But I'll just watch those stupid snails like, <laughs> run around. And I find them really interesting. Like they're probably the most interesting part of my house right now. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, I'm busy with one two-year-old. What, what's it like to have three sons all that age? I mean, are, are they all into sports and stuff? Or what's, what's yeah? So two are baseball players. They play year-round. Um, my oldest plays probably at the highest level you can play at in Austin. Uh, as a you know, as kind of when he was 14, and now as the freshman. Um, all three play football. So I'm the president of the youth football league in Round Rock. I coach the two older ones or the two younger ones right now, but the the middle schooler plays in middle school. The high schooler is starting uh, tight end for his freshman team, uh, and then I got the little one, um, and then they all play basketball. Um, we're pretty busy. Yeah, I mean, we, we we wanted them to be busy. We both, my wife and I, both, you know, were always were busy growing up. Both played sports, kind of kept us out of trouble, if you will, and. Not that my yeah. kids get in trouble, but we just find that when you, when you got a lot to do, you find you don't waste a lot of time, right? You don't you don't goof off as much. You when the time you have, you spend on things that matter, whether that's your sport or homework or whatever it is. So, so are they all tall like dad? Yeah, my oldest is fifteen. I'm trying to think. He's five eleven right now, but one seventy five. So he's a pretty big kid. He'll probably max out about six one. Uh, I don't think he's going to get to 6'5 like I am, but the, the youngest one, he has a good shot at it. He's a little more on that trajectory, So, but they're all big kids. Yeah, that's cool. We, we took Johnny in for his two-year, and uh doctor said, well, he's going to be somewhere between 6'4 and 6'5, and if you remember, I'm, I'm a little bit shorter than you. I'm like 6'3, and uh, you know, super excited about uh, having a big boy. It's a little bit easier when you're a big guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I always said, I always told my kids like six, one, six, two is about, if you're not going to play professional sports, six, one, six, two is about as good as it gets. Cause after that, everything gets a little more difficult, plane ride, cars, <laughs> you can kind of max out a little bit. So. Yeah. Watch your head. Exactly. So I was thinking about this uh, when I was getting ready for uh, talking with you, I just watched a, a movie. It's a show called the social dilemma the other night. And it's talking about social media and kids. And, you know, of course, I'm worried about Johnny growing up. How do, how do you deal with um, impressionable boys and social media? Because that, I, I watched that the other night. It just scared the hell out of me. I mean, give me a little bit of insight into how you're dealing with it in your household. Yeah, so I think um, so. with my 15-year-old in particular, it's tough, right? I mean, we, we, we kept him away from that stuff as long as we could. Um, you know, the biggest risk at one point was sort of the YouTubes of the world. Like, what are they seeing on there and being exposed to? We, we put a lot of energy into teaching them kind of what was okay and what's not, right? You know, we, we don't worry as much anymore about what they see in a movie because they've really been kind of, we, we've groomed them. We've, we've taught them what they need to understand. Um, but then you look at uh, the social media stuff now, I, I think they get a good exposure to a lot of things through it, but a lot of it's really silly stuff. Um, the hardest thing I have is just getting my kid out of the phone, right? It's yeah. just saying you can't be in there all the time. Um, because he's an athlete and because the other two kind of follow behind my oldest, um, we're able to have a pretty good conversation with him about what he puts out there in the internet, that that impression sticks with him forever, that coaches are looking at that stuff. And I think that's put a good... Um, coloring to, to how he looks at that stuff and and you know he's a pretty silly kid you know he's, he's kind of goofy um but it, you know trying to put a lens on like how someone else might interpret things i think does him well and he tries to keep that in light you know on, on that kind of stuff so I, I think it's um it's hard and it's only gonna get harder right oh, yeah. the stuff that's you know that bad and, and some of the stuff didn't even exist a few years ago and if it did, it was really niche, and, and these things are going to be out soon. They're going to be gone. There'll be something else in place. And so um, it's definitely getting harder. Yeah. I, I, my wife and I always kid around that, thank God, some of this stuff wasn't around when we were coming up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're also a little bit more apt to it. You know, they've grown up with it. And so it's also right. special. And so, um, you know, I, I think the hard part is – Honestly, the hard part is the amount of stuff that's out there. 
the important part is just building trust. And so, you know, we really work hard to, to build trust with my son and make sure he understands he can come to us to talk about stuff and that we're trusting him to do certain things. But we want to have some checks and balances in that. And he's been really respectful of that so far. So Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, I was surprised to see that you're a big Bare Naked Ladies fan. And uh, that's cool with me. One of my favorite songs ever is Brian Wilson. You know, so uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big fan of theirs as well. They're just great musicians. So how many, how many times have you seen them? You just give it a guess. I would say probably 15 to 20 times on the low side. Um, they were at the first concert I think I ever want, went to. I went to see uh, one of the, you know, Horde Fest or one of those types of deals up in uh, what well, was Great Woods in Boston with, uh, I think it was actually with my wife. I, I think she was, when we were dating, was one of the first concerts I ever went to, and they were the headliner. I didn't have idea who they were. I borrowed a CD from, my, or maybe a cassette even from my brother to, to yeah. like, in just to get a feel for what the music was. Um, and I've just always followed them forever. And we actually went on a, a cruise one. So my wife's favorite band is Guster, which is another oh, yeah. band. And uh, they're from Boston. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, they were used to get hooked up a lot together. So they toured together a lot. And they used to do this uh, boat cruise uh, with Six Man. Um, and so we, we did that with them once. So I've got a bunch of pictures and stuff hanging out with both of the bands. And, just, you know, we were watching Guster. And then we've got the, the members of the Bare Naked Ladies watching Guster with us. Like, it was just a really <laughs> cool experience. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan and just everything they've ever done. Like, It's just really fun music that just sets the right tone and uh, they're just great musicians. So I, I really enjoy it. Well, one of the main guys, one of the main guys quit a few years back, right? Yeah. Oh, that was that was tough. Yeah. He was so good. Yeah. The, and he, he did a solo thing, too, that I thought well, I still enjoy. It's not quite the same because you just don't have the energy of the whole group. But um, but yeah, it, they're I mean, they've been doing it for a long time. Like, kind of date you when you say you're a bare naked ladies fan, but uh, I'm I'm okay with dating myself nowadays, bro. I'm getting close to fifty. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it, you, when you asked, I I, uh, I had to think about it, but that's really the only one that comes to mind anymore. So, well, kind of cool. stands the test of time for me. Well, I was thinking back. We, we've known each other for ten plus years now. I think uh, uh, funny funny thing is uh, here in a few weeks. I'm going to be doing uh, a podcast with somebody else, you know, uh, Latha Subramanian. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Latha. I, I placed Latha uh, with you years ago when you were at McKesson, especially. It might have been U.S. Oncology at the time. It was right after we were acquired, but yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, now yeah, she, no, she's, no. A, she's a senior manager over at Salesforce now. Okay. I think. And uh, I had uh, every time I talked to her, she asks about you. So um just a great lady so uh, going through your background and digging into your background a little bit tell me about you as a kid were, were you a good student i was a um i was never really a good student i actually can't think of a time in my life that i was a really good student um i i, I had a tough i mean i did fine at school um that's not true i did i did pretty well in high school but middle school i went to a private school um, pretty, you know, really good school, but the curriculum was really tough. And back then, um, I didn't realize, but I ended up, my parents discovered I had a learning disability. Um, so at some point during that process, I ended up getting pulled out of recess and that kind of stuff and started working with someone. Do you, do you mind, do you mind talking about what, what, what type? I actually don't know. I mean, it was, I was a little kid, so I don't really remember. Um, but it had to do with how I, when I would hear something, kind of turning that into memory. So I just, okay. a lot of times like, I would hear it and I would understand it when it was said, but it didn't turn into anything. Like it just okay. went out one ear, literally in one ear and out the other. Um, and it would start with, it could be anything from silly things. Like my, we used to live in a split ranch uh, in Boston and my mom would send me downstairs to get something and I would hear her say it, but then I'd walk downstairs. And by the time I got down there, I had no idea what she was asking for. And they always chalked that up for when I was younger as just being me not paying attention. Um, but as I got a little older and went through school and did some testing, they found out that there was something going on there. And so just spent a lot of time figuring out how to turn those things that I was hearing into memories, 
actually figuring it out and putting it together. A lot of writing and just, you know, figuring out what the key points are, that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, probably, I, I want to say that was early middle school, probably those days. By the time I got to high school, it was a little bit different. Um, but yeah, so back then had a lot of trouble, kind of worked through that. Got to high school, decided to go to a public uh, high school in Boston. Um, didn't go to, I, I was originally supposed to be, I, I would lived in Boston. So I was supposed to go to a very, very large school, high um, minority population, um, but just kind of one in a thousand plus kids. Uh, ended up kind of busing, if you will, but actually my mom drove me every day to another town in Boston who didn't have enough students. And so they allowed other places to bring students in. Okay. I ended up in a class of 50 students, and uh, I actually did really well there, if I remember correctly. I mean, my grades were much better there. I found it made much easier. I'm sure I made some adjustments from all the stuff I learned prior to that. Um, but it was actually so easy, I didn't pick up any of the really good, you know, study habits I should have had going into college. So, so hard <laughs> again. But um, yeah, I guess I was a good student in high school, but that was about it. Well, one of the things that uh, we had talked about before was uh, you had told me earlier about uh, you had a job assisting a custodial crew, and uh, that led to something bigger. And what what you just talked about is you know going through that learning disability, you probably had to work a little bit harder to get through some of the things that uh, you know maybe a normal person going through learning those things might have to go through. Tell me about that. I think you said it was a summer job. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So I, I, I mean, I pretty much started working, I think in Boston, when I was growing up, you had to be 16 to work. And so I started working a couple of weeks before my 16th birthday and odd in jobs. So I worked at you know, grocery stores and, you know, all kinds of random places. But one summer, my dad got me, um, my dad worked for the unions for Aspen, yep. uh up North and, uh, he had really good relationships with a lot of the state management, you know, guys. So he knew of, um, some people looking for or the, the guy who ran the department of mental health in Boston and ended up working for, they just really wanted to give some opportunities for some kids, but it, the, the building itself is called the Lindemann building and it's an older building. It actually won architectural awards for, um, whenever it was built probably in the seventies or something like that. Um, but it just didn't have the maintenance it needed. So they brought in some kids to help them out, clean up the office. And it's literally what it was. It was going around cleaning up trash. It was scrubbing down walls because they had tar from when they still had smoking in them. Um, all kinds of stuff. It was pretty, it was grunt work at the end of the day. Um, it's funny that building itself, uh, actually is in the movie The departed. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it, it's they. Uh, there's this really crazy staircase which is completely against every code that exists today, and it takes about ten minutes to walk up. But uh, you can see Matt Damon walking up this crazy staircase to what's supposed to be the police headquarters in Boston, and that's actually now a conference room. Or it was when I was there. It was a conference room in the Truman Center because there's no handicap accessibility or anything. So that's pretty um, cool. Yeah, but I did that job for the summer. Um, you know, the, the, because I was working so hard and I was, you know, really just focused on my job and, and I, I had pretty smart kid, you know, the, the lead guy let me do extra tasks like building stuff, carts and, and kind of thing. So he kind of recognized that I was working really hard and, um, you know, did, did my best along the way. Um, didn't get into trouble, that kind of stuff. And so uh, the next year they ended up extending the program um, and I ended up doing, uh, and a couple of kids had quit too. So, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't quit on it. I, I just did the job cause that's what was needed. Um, but the next year they asked me to come back and I was put on a completely different area. Uh, I ended up going to the, the, the state had commissioned work to be done for kind of preparation for Y2K, which if you remember was kind of every computer in the world was going to die. Yeah. Airplanes are falling out of the sky. <laughs> so they commissioned this large consulting group. I don't remember who it is anymore, but I remember it was something, it was a multi-million dollar project. And then they hired a bunch of interns to uh, go around to each computer and every workstation across the state, in, in, in this case, the Department of Mental Health, um, 
run a utility so that they could then go and plan which ones could be saved and upgraded, which ones had to be trashed. Uh, what did P and then we did surveys of all the users. So what did they know? How much training was going to be involved in all of this? Um, well, I remember the first week we got deployed to start doing this. Um, I went to a site, I don't remember what it was, but I put the disk in, ran the utility and it didn't work. It was literally the first thing we did. We were the first group and it didn't work. Um, I called the, our contact, whoever it was, the head of IT at the time, um, ended up going back to the central office and sitting with him for about eight hours where we rewrote a batch file to make this thing work. And what the problem was, it was these things were built for Windows 95, which kind of tells you when it was. Uh, right. Or Windows NT, either way, all of these computers are Windows 3.1, so I just they weren't even close. And so, but working with this guy, uh, he and I were able to figure it out. I had never written a line of code before, I didn't know what a batch file was, I really didn't know what a batch file was afterwards either. I just knew we fixed it. Um, <laughs> and we were able to go out and fix all these and you know, run these utilities, kind of get back on track afterwards. But that was really my first real exposure to really what coding is, what computers are. Um, and that was right before school. I ended up going off to college, I think the next year, um, as an aerospace engineering major. That was my focus. And, you know, did that for a year, decided that wasn't for me, wanted to get into computers kind of based on that experience. And another year later, um, I was at a career fair, maybe a year or two later, I, I was at a career fair at, at the school. And, you know, you kind of go around and, and certain Companies have really big lines. It's really tough to get through. But I was talking to one of the recruiters at Microsoft, and I, I basically told her that story. And she was blown away that, you know, you can kind of go from, uh, you know, custodian to, you know, doing these computer diagnostics actually helped set up those computers, too. I set up several hundred compact computers back then. Um, and so that got me in the door. Like, it didn't get me the job. But that got me in the door to have a conversation and interview for Microsoft. And then I ended up doing an internship with them as well. So, well, it just goes to show, I think that uh, a lot of people ask me, I, I go out and do um, different speaking engagements for people who are looking for jobs and stuff. And I, I run an IT staffing company. So people are looking for me to help them get jobs, help find people, you know, and I'll go out and talk to people. And it's like, you, you really have to put yourself out there. You know, the harder you work and the harder you network, the more you network with people. And it, it, if you do all those things and keep doing them, good things are bound to happen. You know, so it was uh, it was interesting. I, I wanted to go through that story because I thought it was just awesome about being young, going out there and just working your butt off and putting yourself out there to go and talk to a recruiter at Microsoft. And, you know, next thing you know, you're summer interning there. So I just, I just thought it was a wonderful story to, do, uh, to help people out. So um, how long were you, were you at Microsoft for just one summer? Yeah, I did it for one summer. Um, was, so I went to, so the, the program where I went to school was four and a half years, assuming you do some form of co-op, so you lose a semester, which I didn't do. So I did it my, after my senior year, actually. Um, is that right? No, I did it after my junior year. Uh, so I did okay. after my junior year, talked about going back after my senior year for another uh, internship between, before my last semester. My wife and I had actually um, gone out and spent some time, you know, she came out there with me or she was my girlfriend at the time. And um, we just decided it was really far from Boston. Seattle is a really long way from Boston. And it's a whole nother world. Yeah, it, it's like a five and a half hour flight or something. And when I went in the summer, it was amazing. It was so much fun up there. It rained every day for like five minutes and it was beautiful afterwards. And it wasn't crazy hot. And it was just such a great time. It's so much fun out there. But when I went back, I interviewed in person there um, in the fall. And I don't think I saw the sun the entire time I was there. Like it yeah. was dark the whole time. It was just a very different experience. And so after that, um, I decided to back out and just wasn't, didn't feel like it was someplace, a, a place that I wanted to live right then. So we decided yeah, to well, back in Boston. My in-laws live out in uh, Half Moon Bay, uh, which is just outside of San Francisco here. And um, 
every once in a while we'll go and visit them and they, they have like five or six days a year where the sun's out and the rest of the time is just socked in with fog. I'm like, how do you live here? Yeah, it's crazy for me. Um, like I said, yeah, we, we just decided it was better to be in Boston. We loved, we, that's where we grew up. That's where our family was and family's important to us. Um, even though we live nowhere near them now, it was really important to us coming out of school. So, so digging into your background pretty early on in your career, um, you were in a leadership role or in a management role. Um, is that something that you did by design or did that just kind of happen by happenstance? Yeah, it definitely was not by design. Um, so the, the place that I ended up working when I graduated was a place called Steel Point Technologies. I had done an internship for them. So prior to going to Microsoft, I had worked at Steel Point. Um, and you know, again, my brother made an introduction. I did tech support for them. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a crazy, you know, complicated job, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's where I taught myself how to do databases. Like their whole system was based on under, on top of a database. And I learned really quickly that if you could understand the database, you could understand the application. Um, and so one of my, my, my prides there is I worked the whole summer. Um, at the end of the summer, there weren't too many tech support people around. We, I think two people got hired the same week I did, but they were in and out. And there was one week, uh, my first summer there, where they needed someone to go on site to, I want to say it's called Mince Levin. It's one of the largest law firms in Boston who was using our software. And I had to go out and buy a suit because I didn't own one yet. Um, they sent me, I fixed it in about a day. And I think they had me come back for half a day afterwards just to make sure everything was good. And I made enough in that day and a half, I think, based on the bill rate they billed me out at to pay for my summer there. That's, <laughs> that, that's the difference there. So um, really enjoyed it, though. Went back and, and worked uh, a couple of like winter breaks. When I would come home, I'd go help them out, just work for a couple hours. But when I graduated, uh, they made me an offer as an engineer and on, in the support group. And I was really excited about that. I mean, they, they really gave me a lot of credit for understanding the application and knowing my skill set um, to come in. We're not really at the ground level, so even though I was in the support organization to be a full engineer, which I was really excited about. Um, I think I did that for six months before I ended up moving into a an engineering team. Um, but they were trying, they had most of the engineering team focused on a new version of the app. And so I stepped into join a team of two others that were going to manage and build the old version of the app. Um, and then another six months after that, they got rid of that team and they just merged everybody together. And I did that for about a year until they asked me to take on a team by myself. And it was a support engineering team of the new application. Um, but obviously they could have asked anybody to do that. Um, I had to go hire three people at, you know, I think I was two and a half years out of school, maybe two years out of school, hiring people all older than me. Um, it definitely was not by design, um, but you know, I enjoyed it a lot. It was a great experience. Um, you know, I'd made a ton of mistakes, but I had really good leaders good mentors that I, I looked to, to kind of help me understand what it looked like to be a really good leader, to, to be someone who tries to get the most out of their team. And I, I tried to follow that with my team and I, I think it went well. I did that for about a year. Uh, about six months as a support uh, engineering lead and, and manager, and then six months for a full engineering manager. Um, and then the one of my mentors, one of the guys who, who I really respected the most as a, a manager, and asked me to, to try to join a consulting company. And the biggest reason I did that was because it wasn't my, my, my plan wasn't to become a manager two years out of school, right? Uh, I loved it. I loved leading. Um, I actually did a lot of teaching back then and, and uh, religious school teaching and whatever I could do to help. And, and I thought that was very similar. Um, but I just didn't think I had that technical base to be someone I would respect. And I always remember always my professors in school that I respect are the ones who had been in industry. Those people who had always been in academia, like I, they didn't know what they were talking about. They read it in a book. Um, but the right. people who had their hands dirty, I really respected those. So I went and did some consulting. Uh, worked for a company called Aptaros doing open source consulting. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the goal there for me was to, the people I respected the most technically had all done some form of consulting. 
some form of software aggregation or integration or something. And that's what I was really looking for. How do I accelerate my growth and understanding on the technology side so that when I could then go be a manager, I knew what I was talking about. I wasn't just making it up. Right. Well, and uh, when you go out and consult, um, you really have to be able to think on your feet and uh, go out and it, you're also you're also selling at the same time. I mean, it's it's a whole different deal than working internally at a company. When you are a true consultant, I mean, that's it, it, all I employ pretty much. You know, that's yeah. the the people that work for my company. They go out there and they're the feet on the ground and they're representing my company. It's like you got to have some really good people, and uh, when you get them, you got to hold on to them like they're gold because they are gold. Um, so. What I was going to ask you about was, we talked about it before, we met when you were at, uh, right after U.S. Oncology got picked up by McKesson and became McKesson Specialty Health. Yeah. Tell me about working with um, a company, you know, oncology, that you deal with cancer patients and technology that's going to help out uh, cancer patients. What's that like to work with a company where you're really making a difference with people? Um. It, it's why I really, that, that was the time I really pivoted my career into healthcare technology. Like I've been in healthcare IT since, uh, I actually did a lot of consulting for McKesson um, and then ultimately U.S. Oncology. And my first project for U.S. Oncology was when I was consulting, I built a um, oncology provider portal so that oncologists all around the country inside of the U.S. Oncology Network could discuss clinical cases. And... Yeah. Um, you know, I would watch those cases because I was supporting it. I, that was supposed to be a six, I think a 14 week total project. Um, I did it for nine months and I got to see a lot of the conversations and the discussions about what they were working on and, and kind of the different things they could do. Um, you know, some of it was scary. Like the options were surgery, chemo or steroids. And I'm like, how are those the three options? Like there's gotta be a clearer path in those three. Um, but you know, it, it motivated me to a enable those who didn't know the answer to those questions to connect to those that could was a big deal for me. That's that was something I could contribute from a technology perspective. That um, you know, the, the the people with the medicine who could who just couldn't scale the same way that I could help them scale. And so that was something that was really exciting to me. Um, I uh, it's funny when I was back in my steel point days and I was a new manager, I used to talk to the mentor who I mentioned before, this guy, Adam Michelson, um, about how to motivate a team. And, and back then we were working on litigation support software. Um, you know, we were mostly working for people defending cases. You know, we worked on the Enron case and not really the good side. Uh, so it, it was really tough to motivate people in that scenario. We talked about how I remember having the conversation, which was, if you were someone and your job every day was to go in and put a, a chemical into a different vial and hundreds and hundreds of vials, and that's all you did every day, but you knew one of those could be the cure for cancer, you would never have a problem getting out of bed every day. Right. Um, and so, you know, when I moved to U.S. Oncology, I really had that in my mind that if there's anything that I could do that helps, not maybe cure, but at least um, treat a patient, help someone get the cure, the, the, the care they need the connection to the right provider, the data they needed, um, maybe just make their life a little bit less miserable Then it was very worthwhile compared to oil and gas or any other industry that I could go into. That's awesome. Well, I got a, I got an interesting story. So, uh, it was when you and I first met, uh, had some people working for you and uh, I came out to Texas and we went to dinner at a steakhouse and uh, there was some manager that was coming out to meet us. I, I can't remember her name. Was her last name Love? Oh, Kathy. Yeah. So I was still drinking at the time. And I think maybe I had like three Manhattans before she got there. <laughs> it wasn't a very good meeting on my part. And uh, I remember trying to talk to Kathy after that. And uh, she didn't return my call. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, thank God I don't drink anymore. <laughs> it's the, 
the 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 good part about that story but i i remember waking up afterwards and going i don't think that went very well <laughs> i remember it was a great steak and great drinks but <laughs> it, the, the reason i was there um uh, probably not the best idea that's, on my part a little bit yeah that's funny <laughs> so let's transition over to where you're at right now uh sounds like another um great company uh that can really uh, do some great things for people. So pediatric urgent care, what, what do you guys do? So, uh, so I joined the company almost six months ago now, but they've okay. been around for nine or 10 years. Um, and you know, the two guys who started this, Kevin, uh, Pierce and Brian white, they, they wanted to go invest in something, but wanted to invest in something and build something that they really believed in. They knew that there was a lot of um, opportunity in the urgent care space, but saw that they really wanted to address a gap. They didn't just want to do what everybody else was doing. They wanted to go fill a gap and they didn't see a lot of uh, urgent care focused in the pediatric space on kids. Right. Um, So you can take your kid to a general urgent care, but they don't have pediatricians. there. You don't have someone who specializes in kids. Um, And so they started that in the woodlands actually. Um, that was one of their first facilities, I think. Um, I've actually taken my kids there, uh, but before I ever got involved with these guys. And um, yeah, they, they just had a great service and they really differentiated themselves on fiscal responsibility um, and great service and really focusing on bringing the best care they can, in the most convenient way to parents. That was their goal. And so about three years ago, um, for a couple of reasons, one, because of just the seasonality that comes across in, in that urgent care need, especially for kids, you know, falls are crazy. Blue season is crazy, but you know, in the summer and, and late spring, a little bit less, it's, it's pretty soft. And so they were looking for some other ways to diversify the business. Um, and also just looking at the trends in the industry again, um, they saw that there was a really big opportunity in telemedicine. And so there's actually a second brand that we run under called virtual care for families. I used to be virtual care for kids. Um, and the idea there initially was to help parents when they're, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night and they've got a, a young child and, and they just don't know if they should go in or not. Give them that opportunity to get a hold of somebody, save them a trip, give them a little more confidence. And there's a big opportunity there. Um, I think Kevin and, and Brian were both probably their kids were probably around that age, that like four or five, eight year old age at that time. And they just knew that there was an opportunity for that. And so they expanded into virtual medicine, really without any technology help. They, um, they worked with some partners that they had, some out-of-the-box vendors, but, but started going down this path. And within a year, um, they ended up getting connected with the El Paso School District. And El Paso was looking for a partner to help them address some needs within their own school district, specifically around... Um, just their underserved population and making sure that as much of their community could get seen with proper medical care as possible. Um, and it, it came in two flavors. One is they just had a lot of kids that were missing school. And mm-hmm. so, you know, sometimes those kids were, were just not getting the, the right access to care they needed. And so they were looking for someone to come in and bring that, um, bring that, that healthcare service right into where they already were, which was the school and then school's nurse. School's nurses really aren't allowed to do very much, even though they're capable of a lot. And so what we, we work with them to do is give them access to our providers. So our doctors are on the line. Those doctors can now issue orders through the uh, tests or administration of medication. They can give them Advil, Tylenol, uh, Zofran for nausea, and now because the doctor says it's okay, the nurse can now start giving that stuff to the kids. Where normally they would say, you either got to go back to class or I'm calling mom to pick you up. Those are the only options. The other thing that was important to El Paso is because all of the funding for these schools comes from attendance. And so if kids aren't in school or if they're not getting that doctor's note, they aren't getting their full funding. And that's by the way those kids are suffering because they don't have the money to, to give them what they need in their programs. And so this was really trying to tackle both of those problems. Um, I wasn't around back then. I heard it went a little rough, but the program was overall successful. And so they were able to carry that forward. And that's, that's what we call our school med program now. Um, and then of course COVID hit. And so the world's kind of been on its head 
Um, but we, we've been able to use the same equipment that we were using for flu tests and um, strep tests for COVID tests, for rapid antigen COVID tests. Um, and so we've gone from, I think it was El Paso and uh, Austin ISD and a couple small schools last year. Uh, we had a goal of getting to 15 districts. I think we'll be in probably 30 to 35 districts this year. Um, wow. A lot of that driven by the fact that we're, these schools are trying to find a way to safely open, to really, again, meet the needs of their communities through healthcare services, and we can really help with that. Well, that's awesome. I was going to ask you, good segue, how is COVID, and this is a big thing for a lot of managers and executives, um, how has COVID changed not only the work environment, but the way that you manage the folks that work for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was still at my last company um, when COVID hit and I helped them really in a really two days. I mean, in less than a week, we went from everybody in the office, basically. And I had a couple of developers to everyone, do it fast. everything at home. Um, you know, it was a really big change. And we, we played, I remember just sitting there debating whether we were going to do it and eventually pulled the trigger. I had to get some um you know chromebooks and we just had to do some stuff just to make it work because we thought it was going to be temporary right? right um everyone we we used slack really heavily on the engineering side and with some of the support groups but not sales had never used it um they were just started using it um it went you know i would say it went really well for what it was right we, we, we did a newsletter um we tried to help people understand new ways to work from home but that was all about the transition I think I left there to come here in COVID, um, during COVID. I, I uh, it definitely being hired during COVID is, has been a little weird. Um, you know, you don't really meet any of the people you work with. Um, the interviews are mostly done remote. Um, it's a, that part's definitely a different world. I remember thinking, uh, you know, every other first job I've ever had, I got a clean haircut and I got a nice outfit and none of that even made sense. This one, you just grow your hair out and your beard. Yeah. <laughs> I got to look like everybody else. Grow out the beard. Yeah, I, I actually shaved. So I had a full beard. I had my COVID beard and I shaved for my first day of work. And, um, you know, they didn't know the difference. But for me, that was my, the closest thing I had to that. Um, and then I, I've hired a team. I've gone from nobody. I was the first technologist in the company. And I joined the beginning of May. I have three full-time employees and seven contract employees working with me right now. Um, and again, except uh, we actually, because we do COVID testing, I actually invited all of the members of my team who are local here in Austin to come into the office. And we actually did rapid testing of everyone before we brought them in. So everyone would oh, have cool. the comfort of being in a spot. A, they got to see the experience and you know, I want people to see what we do and understand what it is, not just the technology, but the physical piece, the operational piece. Um, but then we also got to have a real meeting and meet some of these people, but almost everyone in the room had never met each other before. Um, but we spend, a, you know, I, I spent a decent amount of time on teams. We use teams here instead of Slack. Um, that's gone a long way. Uh, we have, a, but we have a stand up every day, um, on teams once a week, we do a team online hour. Uh, we spend at least an hour. We actually, today was, was our day. We almost spent two hours. And we just turn off, we turn on our mics, turn on our cameras and just work on whatever we're already doing. We have a question, we throw it out there. Um, but it just makes it feel a little bit connected without being really intrusive. Uh, I think that's really helped the team. And then we, we now have this goal of getting together once a month to reset. And so we're really switching to more of these special days to be together, as opposed to before all of this, it was you're allowed to work from home certain days. Now it's the opposite, right? We, we want you to come in on certain days. Um, right. and I think that's probably going to be the long-term trend. Um, you know, the other one is, is I'm, I'm hiring people that are in Houston, people are in Boston, not saying I wouldn't have done that before, but with a lot more reluctance and now, you know, not that big a deal. Um, people are going on vacation and they're taking some of their work with them. And because they can get a full, you know, you're going to go for three weeks and you might take a week of that for vacation, vacation, but you could take your work with you and, and pretty much do it the same way you always have. So um, you know, I think from that part, it's been really great. The hardest thing for me is I'm a big believer in, like I said, having the team really experience what our users are doing. And that one's a lot harder in this environment. It's really hard for me to help them really appreciate what it's like to go through being in a nurse's office 
um, having six kids lined up outside the door while you're trying to get the iPad to work, um, that kind of stuff. So um, that's the challenge, but um, I think it's overall been positive. You know, the other one is trying to remind, I know when this happened when I first started doing the COVID thing and I haven't done as much lately, but probably need to remember, remind, remember too, which is telling people to turn off at the end of the day, right? Like it's five o'clock. You haven't like been outside. If you haven't done something different today, go do something. If you different. haven't taken a shower. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to hear about it, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely some of that going on, right? Like you just, you don't want someone to burn out. It's so easy to do. You've just got nowhere else to go in a lot of places. And even though the world's starting to open up, there's the, it's not just the remote piece of it. It's the fact that people are isolated and this is an opportunity to be connected in some ways, but also to make sure this isn't the only way you're doing it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're still a human being, you know, go out go out and be a human being for a few minutes, you know? So one of the things you said there kind of reminded me that I've been in this business for 26 years and so many people didn't want to hire anybody who wasn't on site, you know, and some people have been moving more and more towards that. And this, this COVID just put everything, turned everything completely upside down. And I I don't see it changing. You know, it's, it's really, people are going to get used to it. People are already used to it. And uh, for technologists, it's going to be really hard to, you know, change people from working remotely to going back to going in the office, you know, uh, five days a week or, you know, whatever it is. So it's really, really an interesting thing to see people just go, okay, that's the way it's got to be. Let's do it. You know, and uh, it's really changed everything. I mean, it's, it's a trust thing too. And I think it's really good as a, um, I I've been a big believer for a long time in, in enabling people for success and setting them up for those situations. Um, not having the kind of micromanagement hands on, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And I think this has really forced that issue quite a bit for a lot of managers who just have no choice. If you right. were that hands on, you know, you, I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do your job. I don't think you have a chance of doing that anymore. And you're either going to change or you're going to go find something else to do because you just couldn't do that now. And I think it's really going to help teams get better at what they do. And, and it also differentiates the people who can um, be self-driven and get work done versus those that can't. Those that can't just won't be successful in this. They're going to have to go find something else to do because this that won't work long term. But this has really forced that issue. So one of the things I was going to talk about here was uh, you had mentioned it before you got an older brother and he was a big influence kind of talk about that a little bit. Cause I'm an only child. So, uh, I really like to dig into the family dichotomy a little bit. Tell me about your older brother and tell me how he kind of, uh, influenced you. Sure. Uh, so my, so I've got two siblings. I've got an older brother. He's about uh, 10 and a half, 11 years older than me. Um, technically my half brother, but I mean, to me, he's just my brother. Um, so, I mean, I've got a younger sister, a sister two and a half years younger than me. So when I was growing up, you know, he was, by the time I remember anything, he was already pretty much in high school. So, you know, the first memories, kind of early on memories I have of him. Um, but he was always looking out for me. He was never too cool for me. You know, he got me cool toys. He, he watched cartoons with me. He, you know, we would watch movies or, or cartoons in the morning or in the afternoon and, and we'd eat popcorn together and He'd eat with uh, chopsticks, so I learned how to ch- eat chops- use chopsticks eating popcorn. I still do it today. <laughs> um, everyone thinks it's fun. It's weird, but I, that's I awesome. Um, but no, so so he's always been that just kind of that that older figure. You know, he, my dad was awesome, but you know, he's my dad, and, and my older brother just wanted to have fun and, and just be a great person, but good good friend to me. Um, but he was always so many steps ahead, right? 10 years is a long time. So I always really disrespected him. Um, when I got to high school, um, you know, he played, he ran track and played soccer. And so, you know, those weren't my things, but I played basketball and I really wanted to do that. I knew he had been in the National Honor Society. So that was really important to me for a long time. Um, you know, I just really wanted in a lot of ways to, I don't want to say be a peer to him. Like that wasn't my goal necessarily, but to get to the level where he was, and he was just so far removed. Um, it's a little funny because 
he's probably about 5'10", 5'11", and I was six feet tall before I got into high school. So <laughs> I've been bigger than him in a long time. We, we've actually joked a lot about he's my older brother, not my big brother. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just always been my goal was to, uh, to do that. And then, you know, as I got into college, um, it was where things did change a little bit. Like, you know, he was, he's in marketing. That's always been his job and, uh, he's great at it. He's just really innovative in how he thinks through the mark through, through more of an artistic landscape. Um, but you know, when he was trying to figure out what, you know, sort of what web pages needed to be. And I was going through that, that computer science degree and he was calling me and I was helping him with HTML as I was learning it. And so we actually got to spend some time there for a while. There's just so many things about my brother that I've enjoyed and appreciated about him. And I, I really think the way that he treats everybody in my mind with respect and the way that he's always been um, just made time for whoever needed it. At least that's how I perceived it. And I don't know who knows what it was really like. Right. But that's how my perception of it. And I really think that influenced you know, my upbringing and, and, and kind of who I became with trying to treat everybody with respect and that same type of patience and thoughtfulness that I really think he did for me. Well, perception's everything, you know, it's like, uh, going and looking back at, uh, I'm writing a book right now. It's called true ambition and going back and looking at your life and reexamining things and trying to figure out how you ended up or why you ended up where you ended up. It, perception's everything, yeah. you know? So it's like, it doesn't really matter what's going on. What matters is the way you look at things in your head, <laughs> because if you look at everything through a negative lens, your whole world's negative, but uh, if you look at everything through a positive lens, you know, good things are going to happen, you know, and it's, it doesn't even, maybe not good things are going to happen, but you're thinking good things are happening because you're looking at them that way. Yeah, you're, you're ready. And, and I, I, that's how I, I agree. I talk, talk to my kids about this a lot now, right? Like my kids are now at the age that I remember being when this was kind of happening to me. And you know, my oldest is, is a, he's an oldest. He's an amazing at everything he does. He's kind of a perfectionist. Yeah. And so he's really tough on himself. And I try to tell him, if you look at it as you failed, then you're going to feel like a failure all the time. And you're not going to want to keep doing things. But if you look at the successes you have and you look at the things that you do well and the opportunity you have to get better, then everything's easy, right? It's just an opportunity to learn. Every strikeout in baseball, if you'd walk around angry, then you're not going to get any better and you're just going to get frustrated. But if you walk away and say, what could I have done differently? What can I adjust to the next time? You're constantly getting better. And it's just such a different way to look at the world, that preparation and, and that perception uh, difference of how do you want to look at that experience drives everything around. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of different things talking about, one of the things that I heard the other day was awesome was, you know, don't compare yourself to other people compare yourself to yourself yesterday. You know, have you gotten better? Are you tr striving to get better? Because like I, I was asking you before about, you know, how you deal with social media with three impressionable boys. It's because they have, thank God I've got a boy too. I'm, I'm very glad I don't have a girl because it's so hard to see some of the stuff that's out there that these girls have to live up to. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it, that's not real. That's not real life, you know? And if you just strive to be a better person day after day, um, you know, that, that's what I love. That's what I'm going to try to teach my boy, you know? So, um, speaking of that, what, what, what's, I'm sure you do a lot of, uh, reading. Um, what, what's, what's one of your latest, uh, and greatest books that you've read recently? I like to, kind of let people know what uh, all my guests are reading at the point at, at uh, the time. Yeah. I'm, I just started a new one. Um, can't even think of the name right now, but the last one I read before that was I'm a big Patrick Lincioni fan, however you say his name. Um, you know, five dysfunction of a team, uh, all of those, but he wrote one recently called the motive. I think is the name okay. of the book. And it's, uh, you know, all of his books are, or most of his books are written as kind of business fables. I think that's not what he calls them. And so there's short stories where you learn a lesson through it. And then he breaks down that lesson, that business lesson. Um, but I really enjoyed the motive. Um, 
it's, it's very much about leadership and not how to, um, not the how of being a leader, because a lot of his books are about how to be a leader. This one's really about why. Why do you choose to be in that role of leadership? What is it that drives you to be in that role? And are you in it for the right reasons? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do, I read a lot. Um, I'm constantly reading, trying to find something new to, to help me do something a different way. And a lot of the stuff's the same, in all honesty, the, the techniques are slightly different. But what I find by reading these different things is every time I read something, I pick up something different. And a lot of times it's a reminder of something I know, but I just don't think about it anymore. Um, and I, I find, um, you know, in, in this book in particular, like I, I've, I've known for a long time, I've always known why I wanted to be a leader, why that's something that really excites me. You know, um, when I was a kid in high school, I wanted to be a teacher, actually. Um, being a manager, being a leader has been sort of my alternative to that. Right. Um, but it was always about the people you're, you're helping. It's not about me or my job or my role or if I can do it better. Um, it's not even about um, what I'm, you know, what I want to do, the work that I want to do versus work I don't want to do. Um, it's, it's about how do I make this team better? And that's the responsibility you take on by being a leader. And I think that's a lot about what this book is about. It's doing the, the hard things that make you a leader that maybe aren't the things you find fun or want to do. Well, you might have you might have just answered some of the questions for my last question here, and this is the question that everybody who's on the True Ambition podcast gets to end uh, the interview. So, uh, True Ambition. So, the reason that I came that I call this the True Ambition podcast is that I really wanted to go out and find people, find out what people's true ambitions were. So, uh, the quote actually comes from uh, a twelve step program. And it really changed my life about five years ago when I read this quote. It says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that, I've always been an ambitious person. Um, but I found that when I was younger, um, my ambitions were pointed in maybe the wrong direction. Um, to get money, to get power, to get girls, get, you know, whatever. Um, now that I look back at my life a little bit, I see that my ambitions, my true ambitions are a little bit different. Um, I want to ask you, and you just answered some of them there after you were talking about, uh, uh, the motive, uh, book. Um, what are your true ambitions, both professionally and personally? Uh, and I'll let you take it over. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, for me, for a long time, I've, I've really been very focused on how to help people. Um, and again, I, I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I only reason I gave up on that dream was because I uh, didn't want to go through a very English intensive program when I was so good at math and sciences. And so I took an engineering path. Um, but I've, I've taught religious school forever. I've coached. I've been coaching sports for over at least 10 years, probably a little bit longer than that. Um, and all of them have that same flavor of um, setting up the scenario for people to be successful in ways they wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, right. and I think that's really what I that gets me up in the morning. That's why I do what I do. Um, I love that I do it in healthcare, and I love um, you know the people that I'm doing it with. My peers at this company are amazing people, but at the end of the day, my my true ambition is just to continue to have a larger and larger influence on helping people be successful in ways they weren't otherwise and keep going on in that path. And I, I think that's true personally as well. It's why I coach, it's why I run the football league. I never even played football. I, I was more of a baseball, basketball guy, but I find that the skills that I've learned and that, that passion I have for helping kids um, set themselves up in a, in a way that again, just on their own, they might not have the same successes or, or afford themselves those same opportunities and doing it in a positive way there's lots of ways to motivate people in a negative way, but doing it in a positive way, um, a little more rare. It, it's becoming more popular now, but it wasn't always. And so that's, that to me, that's my true ambition is just helping people see that there are positive ways to, to influence and lead. People. Well, that's awesome. Um, I want to thank you for coming on and doing this, uh, the true ambition podcast. I really appreciate knowing you for as long as we have. And as soon as all this COVID stuff is done, I'll be coming out to see you in person out there in Austin and we'll go out and uh, see a band.
Maybe awesome. bare naked ladies. Who knows? That would be fantastic. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. It was great to see you, John. I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.